Bismillah, assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Travelers Podcast. This is Brother Ali. Thank you so much for being here with us. We have a bit of an unusual uh, episode this week in a lot of ways. One of the first is that our guest on the podcast is the great Jane Elliott. Jane Elliott is uh, an educator and one of the most outspoken OG um, European Americans that I've ever experienced and that I think exists in the world. Uh, a little bit more about her later, but the way that this podcast came about was that we tried for a couple of days to to get the schedule together with uh, with Miss Jane, and then also to figure out the technical side. And we ended up in a situation where it was like, okay, we can do it right now with very little prep in Zoom. We usually use a different uh, platform that allows Brendan, the producer of the podcast, a little bit more freedom in helping out in the audio and the video on both sides and things like that. But it, it ended up, the case was like, we can do it right this minute with very little setup time on Zoom. And so we jumped at the opportunity. We, we got on. We had a great conversation. It was super dope. But you're going to hear some, you know, the, the, the audio and sometimes video quality is not going to be as good as it, as it oftentimes is on the podcast because it was just, I, also, I'm on tour. I'm traveling. So it was a run and gun situation. But the conversation that we had was really dope. And I'm really, really grateful for it. Um, you know, I've, I've mentioned this in the podcast and I'll talk, you'll hear in our conversation, but race was, a, was a, something that was really, really um, uh, real to me from very early on. So growing up as an albino kid, born to white parents or parents that would be called white, um, I experienced a being ostracized and feeling like an outsider, feeling alone in the world until uh, African-American people, black people, um, began to teach me and, and be my friends and, uh, from a very young age. And so what I learned almost immediately is that the world, the white world, the mainstream world, is lying about and is hiding the, the truth about my friends and who they are and what they experience. And then I also started to notice that my white family and countrymen are also not getting the full picture of who they are because they, they have been lied to and continue to perpetuate uh, lies of omission about who they are and who, what this country is and the real story about how we all came to be who we are and how we are. And so the only person that I saw, the only person that looked like me that I saw, or the only person that would be called white, uh, that I saw speaking about this in a way that was eloquent and seemed to be speaking from the, the bottom of their soul was Jane Elliott. There was a, a documentary called Eye of the Storm where Miss Jane, the day after Martin Luther King was assassinated, she did an exercise with her children and she was a school teacher and you'll hear her say that she's not a teacher, she's an educator, but did an exercise with them where uh, I can't remember if it was the blue-eyed kids or the brown-eyed kids, but she said the blue-eyed kids are better than the brown-eyed kids, they're smarter because her class was, was white. And she wanted to, she was in Iowa. And she said, I want for white kids to have some sort of taste or some sort of reference point for what people of color go through in a nation that's, that among its many beautiful characteristics is set up on a hierarchy based on racial prejudice, ignorance and fear and hatred. And so she said that the blue-eyed kids are smarter than the brown-eyed kids. And go watch the Eye of the Storm, and you can see that she's continued to do this exercise throughout the years with teachers, with adults. She said, uh, 
you know, the blue-eyed kids are better than the brown-eyed kids. You can't associate with each other. They're smarter. And she started noticing that the blue-eyed kids in the class in one day started to develop a superiority complex and that the brown-eyed kids started to develop an inferiority complex. That uh, smart brown-eyed kids that could go through a card pack, for example, really quickly, they started to get slower because they started to believe what the teacher was saying about them in one day. So imagine 400 years of this. And so then she, the next day she came to school, just one day each, and she said, I was wrong. It's the opposite is true. The brown-eyed kids are better. The brown-eyed kids are smarter. And she noticed within one day's time that the brown-eyed kids started to develop a superiority complex. The blue-eyed kids started to develop an inferiority complex. And then she got this tremendous backlash and this vitriol and hatred from other white people. And it really led her down this, this quest of being a lifelong truth teller about race in, in America. And she's the first person I saw do that. So she's somebody that's always held a really high station in my heart because of that. Um, I want to say that it's always the case when we talk to people that because we're talking to them, it doesn't mean that we necessarily agree with everything that they're saying or the particular way that they word what they're saying. And I think that should go without saying. I think we should be able to have dialogue with people um, that we respect and we love and we admire and we learn from. And it doesn't mean that the, every single way that they say and do everything, that we are um, co-signing every single detail of what they do. Um, I say that because Ms. Jane, and it's important to understand people's context. What context are they speaking from and who is their intended audience? So one example of this is that, you know, Ms. Jane is an educator and she, it's really important to her that uh, white people, people who are called white, uh, really get the understanding that their group identity is, is based on a genetic mutation of people moving around the world, that the first ancestors of us all are African, that African people, dark people, uh, black people are the mother and father of humanity, are the original people. That's very important to her. It's very important to me too. I think it's a very important and tr a truth just to know because we live in this racialized, charged environment uh, where bodies who are understood and called white are the norm, are centered, are considered to be uh, the, the, the standard by which every, all other bodies and all other cultures and civilizations and ways of doing and thinking and ways of being and knowing and expressing that everyone else will be judged by this standard. You know, that's ultimately what the myth of white supremacy is really about. And um, so she makes this point to educate in this way. But she says, you know, we have to stop saying black and white. And she's an educator. And so she's really big on this. Don't say black. Don't say white. Don't say, the, you know. And so one of the questions you'll hear me ask is that, you know, it's, it's true that race, the myth of race, the lie of race is science fiction, but it's social reality. And so because of the experiences that people have had, the traumas that people have endured and survived for hundreds of years, uh, it's it's created. There is there are certain group dynamics that might not be scientific truths, but they're social truths. And if you listen to uh, you know educators like Dr. Resma Menikim, who we hope to have on the podcast, there are certain traumas that actually do become scientific realities. Uh, the way that the bodies respond to traumas that they've had, and so you know you'll hear her say that people shouldn't call themselves white, people shouldn't call themselves black, and I would. 
I, you know, th that's not something that I would particularly say because I was nurtured in the community of black Islam, for example, from the time I was 15 years old and even really before that through hip hop and, and what have you. And so I know that communities that have raised me and made me part of who, making me who I am and making hip hop what it is and making the world what it is and making America what it is have a certain sense of, 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 of identity and pride and a certain sense of group belonging and dynamic within terms like black. And so to say, don't say that, no one should say that. Well, I think that it's, it's important to note that, that Ms. Jane is talking to white people and is challenging their notion of what does it actually mean to be white? This identity that we've been taught before we're born, She's saying, what does that actually mean? And let's really investigate that. So she's complicating the narrative for white people. You'll hear her say her intention is not to educate or speak to black people or people of color. She's a student when she's with people of color in, with regard to race. Uh, because she said, I need to learn from them. And you'll hear her talk over and over and over again. I don't have any authority when it comes to them. And if you go and look at the, the, some of the talks that I did uh, during the, the uprising when I was living in South Minneapolis and, and, and the uprising was going on, I always start by saying, if you're black, if you're a person of color, my only message to you is salute solidarity. Nothing I or anyone else has said or done has freed you, so you do what you need to do. But to the white people that listen to me, to the people who understand them, themselves to be white, uh, who listen to me, this is the message that I have and this is what I want to say. So um, we're going to jump in to this really raw and really real, you know, when you talk, when we're talking to our elders, Miss Jane is in her 80s. This is our first time really connecting. When you're talking to people that are in that group, you know, they have no more care or concern for how we view them. She just wants her message to get out. And so she's super raw, she's super real, she's super uncut, and I'm just so grateful. You'll see and you'll hear that um, we just connected in such a way that was really, really beautiful and meaningful for me. So let's jump in. We're brought to you, as always, by the Zakat Foundation. We're brought to you by Unity Productions Foundation. We're brought to you by Vice Gerent Makers and Merchants of Fine Men's Tailored Clothing, and also by Rezma Menikin and his upcoming book, uh, April the 12th. Uh, the Quaking of America. So enjoy this episode of Traveler's Podcast. The great educator, uh, Jane Elliott, you are somebody that I have admired and looked up to and loved and drawn strength from and prayed for, for years and years. Uh, talking on the phone the other day was our first time you know, ever communicating, but I've been listening to and watching and reading and just learning from you for it feels like most of my life. And so I'm so, so grateful to you and really, really happy to have this time with you. Well, it probably is most of your life since I'm 88 years old and I don't think you're anywhere near that, right? <laughs> I'm 44 years old on this day. And I was, was born in 77. Was, so you, you were 10 years into your work by the time I even got here. I was 44 years old when you were born. Yes, ma'am. Oh my God. But let's talk about something besides age rather quickly. Okay, let's get right to it. <laughs> Uh, so I've heard people call you a teacher and I've heard you quickly correct them because a teacher is somebody who just administers already prepared information on behalf of a system. An educator is someone who leaves people out of ignorance. That's right. That's absolutely right. 
Yes, ma'am. Um, I'm curious because so many people start your story the day after Dr. King was shot. You were planning on delivering a lesson about First Nations people, uh, Native people. And then when Dr. King was shot, you spent that night thinking about how you would introduce something and uh, introduce this. And it's not an experiment, but it's an exercise on blue eyes and brown eyes to make to try to figure out how to give white children even the slightest taste of what it is to be a person of uh, of, of pigment and, and melanin in this country. So many people start at that place, but it really feels like you hit the ground running. And so I wonder what happened in your life before that that prepared you for that moment. Oh, I had a father who would say, don't judge a book by its cover mm. and who would also say, uh, a man's judged by the company keeps in the best of companies, none too good. And he'd say, you know, the difference between right and wrong. I'll do the right thing. God damn it. And I'd think, well, you just swore, but the, the, the preamble was you do, you know, the difference between right and wrong, do the right thing. And when Martin Luther King Jr. Was killed, we were studying the Indian unit and we didn't teach the truth about the Indian unit. We just taught the Indian unit as we had learned it. And I realized while I was watching that horror on television, the night after See, when I think about it, I get sick, literally get sick to my stomach to this day because I can remember Walter Cronkite saying to three leaders of the black community, when our leader was killed, his widow held us together. Who's going to keep your people in line? I was absolutely astounded that he would make such an ignorant, unfeeling, prejudicial statement. So I changed the channel and there was Dan Rather saying to two black men, don't you Negroes think you should feel sympathy for us white people because we can't feel the anger at this killing that you black, that you Negroes can. And I thought, oh my God, these are the people who choose the news stories and mm -hmm. give us the news every night. And this is the way they feel about 25 to 30% of the population of the United States. I was absolutely infuriated because everything my father had ever said to me about what is moral and what is right and what is true came flying back into my face and there was no way I could go into my classroom the next day and just treat the killing of Martin Luther King Jr. as just another assassination by the government in the United States of America. I couldn't do that. If I was going to be a, an educator, I had to tell my kids the truth. And yes. you can tell little children the truth and they don't, uh, they don't understand it. But if you let them feel the truth, then suddenly it becomes clear to them that a whole lot of what they've heard before hasn't been true. And so that's what I decided to do at that moment. I just probably made a huge mistake for my children and for me and for my husband. But I think I'm, I did a good thing for those students. And that's what I was there for. I wasn't getting paid to do things that were good for my husband, my children and me. I was getting paid to do the right thing in educating those children. How many other white people in your situation felt the same way that you felt, but haven't been able to come up with this beautifully articulated platform that you've developed? But, you know, it's, it's not that you're the only person that ever felt that way. And I wonder, you know, in, in my generation, when we think about our parents and grandparents generation, we wonder if they had this lens. But can you talk to me a little bit about you know, were there other people that had a really similar feeling in their hearts that might notice what, what Walter Cronkite and Dan Rather are saying and know that that's racist, but maybe they just didn't have the language or the tools and, and or the courage to develop well, what you have? They didn't think they had the responsibility. But as an educator, I had the responsibility to tell the truth to my students. As an educator and a mother, I have the responsibility to tell the truth to my children, to my offspring. 
And I would not want them to have lived the last 60 years of their lives, those who are still alive, to think that it was all right to treat people positively or negatively on the basis of your ignorance about skin color. Because just now, I just finished listening to somebody say, and it's all about racism, and it's all about skin color. And I said, no, it's not. Skin color is natural. It's about the ignorance that we encourage people to live with. We judge people by the color of their skin. That's our fault, not the skin color's fault. That's yes, a choice we make. It is yes. not about skin color. You can't yes. change skin color. You can change ignorance. Yes, ma'am. Well, I'm an albino, so I, I know that from a different, from a slightly different perspective. <laughs> but, <laughs> you may be an albino, but you've got brown eyes, and most albinos are pink-eyed, aren't they? Well, it might just be either that your eyes are very beautiful, so you're seeing brown, or maybe the way the light. But my eyes are are very pink when when the oh, light is. Oh, they are. Bright. Oh, they don't yes, look. They look. I'm sorry. Well, I'm happy to meet you, albino. Have you read <laughs> what happened? <laughs> Have you read what happens to albinos in Tanzania? Yes, ma'am. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? Has anybody ever treated you un unfairly because of the color of your skin or the color of your eyes? Absolutely. I think it's why I my parents are white uh, or would be called white. They both passed away. But I think that my particular uh, introduction into the racial reality of America and the ignorance uh, therewith is related to the fact that I was treated horribly by white kids and I was taught how to live life as an outsider by black friends, elders, lovers, partners, families. Those are the people that really taught me how to live. And so from the time I was a little kid, that's that's how I got the awareness that this country is lying about my friends. Well, of course it is. It, and it's lying about your parents. And every time you say your parents were white, you are contributing to the lie because they aren't white. Human yes. beings do not come in white and black. Human beings come in shades of brown. So if we're going to use white and black, which came to us in the 14th and 15th century, if we're going to use words from the 14th and 15th century, then we should use the means of communication and transportation that they used in the 14th and 15th century. And you should be, and of course you have a problem anyway because of your lack of color in your skin, but you will have to be wearing knee breeches and powdered wigs if you're going to live the way you talk. We've got to yes, stop using the words white and black. People who don't have enough iron in their blood to keep them healthy are called anemic. People who don't have enough melanin in their skin to keep them safe, to make them safe from the rays of the sun should be called melanemic. And those of us who have a little more should be called melanaceous. And those of us who have a lot of melanin in our skin should be called melanotic. And melanotic is in the dictionary. It means almost black. Melanaceous and melanemic will be in the dictionary before I die. Because I'm going to yeah. stay alive until they are. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for that correction. You know, and, and one of the things, and, and for that education, one of the things that I love so much about Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm X is that they came along when uh, children of African uh, enslaved people were being called Negroes, and they said so-called Negro, and they said the yeah. so-called white man. So they right. they used those terms uh, with, a, with a type of um, protest. Right, right. And they should have used it and they should have protested it. And we should still be protesting white and black for people because white is the color. Look at the dictionary. You said little kids to the dictionary, say, look up white and it's pure and good. Now look up black It's savage and evil. Why in the world do we choose those two words today? They've, we've only been using them for less than 500 years. It's time to stop the use of those two words. Yes, ma'am. You know, one of the things that I've heard you uh, speak about is the fact that 
you know, not only was it Dr. King at the time that you were a young person, but also that your father seemed to be really interested in the way that Hitler was dividing people. And so I wonder if you could share something about the education uh, of, you know, seeing seeing the way that people are divided based on this from from Hitler. I was born the year Adolf Hitler and Franklin Roosevelt came to power in their respective countries. I was born in 1933. So from 1933 until 1945, I watched my father absolutely infuriated by what Adolf Hitler was doing. Here I get to be 80 years old, 84 years old, 83. And here comes a man who runs on the platform of let's return to the days of Adolf Hitler. That's what I saw immediately. I saw Donosaurus T. Rump doing exactly what Hitler did. And I thought, now you're exaggerating here. That, that isn't really what's happening. So then I read the book, When at Times the Mob is Swayed. Have you read it? No, ma'am. Okay, get the book, When at Times the Mob is Swayed. And I can't remember the author's name, but he says in the first or second chapter, Donosaurus T. Rump has in his bedside table in a locked drawer, the book, The New World Order, which is the writings of Adolf Hitler. When I read that, I realized that I wasn't dreaming that what my father had said about Adolf Hitler is exactly what we should be saying now, should have been saying about Donosaurus T. Rump. He was attempting to divide this country, and he has gotten it done with the help of the evangelicals. We've got to get back to where we were. We've got to get back to realizing that whatever your religion is, that's your business and nobody else's. You have the right to worship as you choose or to not worship at all. I have a daughter who's an agnostic, and I have no problem with that. I also have a daughter who was married to a Muslim, and I have no problem with that. I have a son who's, I have a son who's married to a Catholic. Now, that I have a problem with. But I don't really. That's the mixed marriage. We're calling that one a mixed marriage. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's the only, see, that's, that's a good thing, too, because we can't, we've got to stop talking about mixed racial, mixed racial marriage. No, there is no mixed race marriage because we are all members of the same race. The only way you can have a mixed marriage where race is concerned is if you are married to someone from outer space. Now, there are some people that I watch Will Smith. <laughs> Did you watch that this week when he slapped Chris Rock? I, I, I wasn't watching live, but I, somebody sent me the clip. Oh, good Lord. I thought, okay, maybe he is from outer space. Nobody with any common sense would do such a ridiculous thing. But you see, people who say, well, you're, you're in a mixed marriage, I immediately say, wait a minute, that person is mixed race? You're going to call that person mixed race, right? Well, yes, it's obvious that he or she is. Well, then tell me where, what planet their, his parents came from. Well, they came from this planet. So they aren't in a mixed race marriage. Get over it. I, that's the reason not a lot of people want to talk to me, and I'm surprised that you are still listening, because I say things that nobody wants to hear. Mm. Well, you say things that a lot of us would love to be able to say and, and, are, and cannot find the, the intellect and the courage and uh, the, the brilliance of articulation to say them the way that you do. I wonder... No, you wait, know, wait, 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 wait. Let's get past that. You have the brilliance. You have the articulation. You have you have everything that it takes, except that you're not an old white woman. I don't have to worry. I get death threats all the time. And now I say when it happens, go for it, darling. Because if you kill me now, 
I'll get to be with my husband and my son. That I'm looking forward to. I'll miss my, the other three kids, but I'll get to be with those two, those two people and my father. However, you need to remember, if you kill me for what I do to try to decrease the level of racism in this country, you might make a martyr out of me. And then you might have to spend the rest of your life celebrating Jane Elliott Day once a year. Now, do you want to do that? And then the kids who are saying, no, no, no. And they make the sign of the cross. And they go, oh, no, no, no. I said, then shut up and listen while I'm talking. Because, you see, I'm an old white woman who has no fear of death. I am old. Right. old. Yeah, old for me is an acronym for octogenarian loving discrepancies. I would love to make everyone upset. I want people to be so upset that they can no longer justify thinking the way we have been taught to think in this country for the last 500 years. I want every person to stop thinking about themselves as this, this society tells them to think about themselves, depending on how they look. That is not the way you judge people. If you have to judge, you must not be a Christian, because in the Bible it says, judge not that you be not judged. So let's get over that. Let's get over judging people and simply accept them as they are. But we don't know how to do that because we have been taught not to do that. We have been taught that behind a black face, there is a black attitude. Behind a white face, there is purity and goodness. And I have the right to say those things because I have the right color face. Think about that. Black women um, have, the, the, have forgotten more since breakfast than I'll ever learn. You know <laughs> it and I know it, but they wouldn't yeah. dare say the things that I do because they don't have the right complexion. This makes no sense. Absolutely no <laughs> sense at all. <laughs> Paul Mooney calls it, used to call it the, the complexion for protection. Yes, yes. And isn't that ridiculous? Because we are a minority on the face of the earth. People look yes, like me. And yes, you're an even smaller minority. <laughs> <laughs> you are an oddity and I'm just odd. Amazing. Amazing. You mentioned having a, a Muslim son-in-law and that just made my heart sing a little bit because uh, I'm, I, I converted to Islam when I was 15, partially because I love early hip hop music and Malcolm X so much. Uh, oh, a white woman oh. came and visited and heard Malcolm X speak at Harvard. She was originally from the South and they were protesting him, but she loved what he said. So she went to Harlem and waited at the Muslim, at the black Muslim restaurant until he arrived. And she said, I believe in everything you said. What can I do to help you? And he famously said nothing. And she cried and left. Yeah. And, but then he wrote after he went to Mecca, he wrote in his autobiography. If you really believe it, our community, the black community, his community, uh, in quotes, is not where the source of the problem is. The white community, in quotes, the melanaceous community, I believe he said, is the melanemic. source of the problem. So melanemic. So if you believe, if you really believe, then minister to your people. And I, the first time I read that, I thought of you because I had seen the documentary that was done. And, I, and you are the only person when I, was, when I was 15 years old at that time that I could bring to mind, uh, the only European-American person or descendant of Europe that I had seen speak about the ignorance of race the way you did. Did you have examples? Well, number one, isn't that pathetic that I'm the only one of my, of my color group? that you had ever heard speak that way. That in itself says something about this country. I had the example of my father. I read a lot. We lived in Waterloo, Iowa, my husband and I did with our four children. And he ran a grocery store, a national tea store in the north end of Waterloo, which was the black section. 
we had been told the most disgusting things about black people until he got that job. And suddenly we realized that we had been horrendously lied to up until the time we were 20, 20 years old. And then it, that's the time at which I began to realize that, oh my God, I have been miseducated. I have been lied to for 20 years and I'm going to see to it that my children aren't lied to in this way. And it was, it was really difficult for me to be around my neighbors because we moved to the west side of Waterloo, obviously, because that's where you lived when you're white. And all my neighbors were white and as ignorant as I was, had been before I got there. I changed my attitude completely entirely after we had been in Waterloo for a couple of years. It was just amazing. The kinds of things that those people of color, those were remarkable, melanaceous and melanotic people were doing and were able to do, and to do it quietly without any fanfare, just do it. But my husband was the first store that was picketed by the NAACP in Waterloo. And because the NAACP picketed his store, National Tea closed the store and moved it over to the west side to get even with the black people on the north end and lost the business. Those folks couldn't get across the river. They didn't, most of them didn't have cars. It was the most racist thing I have ever been involved in. And we shortly after that left Waterloo and moved back to Riceville where there were no black people. So there was no racism, right? <laughs> and how often did I hear that? And how often have I heard that ever since? It's been really, it's been, it's one of the most frequent remarks I hear. I hear, and I still, I'm still hearing it. Well, we wouldn't have racism if we didn't have those people. Well, those people aren't the problem. Skin color isn't the problem. Ignorance about those people and about the, the about skin color is the problem. Skin color is not the problem. Ignorance is the problem. And I learned that in Waterloo, Iowa. And the fear that's born of that ignorance. Oh, and the fear is getting much worse now because everybody knows that within 30 years, white people, will so-called white people, melanated people will be a numerical minority in the United States of America. And we are scared to death of what's, how we are going to be treated by those that we have treated badly all our lives. We're scared to death that the, that the golden rule, which says do unto others as you would have others do unto you, is going to tell people of color to treat us the way we have treated them. Because we're good Christians and we follow the golden rule. No, we don't treat people of color the way we want to be treated. And there's a, there's a clip out there somewhere of me saying to a group in Southern California at a, on a college, well, every white person in this room who wants to spend the rest of his life being treated the way we have treated people of color, in, and nobody stands. Nobody I play stands. That clip, I play that clip like it's one of my favorite songs. Like I play it on repeat while I'm getting ready in the morning. It is flat out truth right there in front of your face. They all just look at one another out of the corner of their eye. They look around like this, like, is anybody going to stand? I'll do what everybody else does. Nobody stands. And they can't yes. argue with me when I say, see, you know it's there. You know it's ugly. You know you don't want it to happen to you. I want to know why you're so willing to let it happen to somebody else. And to deny that it's happening. See, I think yes. that is, that, and that, that clip has had millions of viewers because yes. that's an important statement. And those, every person in that audience, all those educated people, made a statement by sitting there. And the, and the denial of it is one of the uh, is one of the most difficult and infuriating and really evil aspects of it, because at, at least if there's an acknowledgement, then then that can bring about at least some step toward healing. But as long as it's denied, and as long as the people that speak up against it are demonized and vilified in the ways in the ways that we are, 
Yeah, it's such an important part. You know, so I wonder but, when you but see, but that but see that's a very important statement to make because yes, of because of critical race theory. <laughs> CRT for me stands for consistently recognizing truth. <laughs> when you consistently recognize truth, you are going to scare the pants off the people who have been consistently lied to. We are Critical race theory and consistently recognizing truth isn't about trying to make white children feel guilty. It's about letting all of us know the truth, admitting the truth, and then behaving in such a way that in the future, we won't have the same ugly truths to deny. We'll be able to say we didn't contribute to that. We behaved in a different way, and we are going to continue to behave in a different way. I think I learned more from my daughter's Muslim father-in-law in three hours at their house in Saudi Arabia, sitting there, I asked him questions about the Muslim faith. And he commenced to tell me exactly what they believe and why they believe it. And it was like I was, it, and I know it wasn't, but it was like I was at the feet of a prophet because he was saying what he believed. And I couldn't agree with everything he believed, but I, I could agree with the, the core of what is in the Muslim faith, when you if to kill one person is as if you had killed the whole world. Now think about that. If we could just believe that, if we could get that information or that idea into Putin, we could stop some ugly something really ugly that's happening right now. I just learned so much from that man sitting there, and I said, "Why do women have to cover so completely?" He said, "That's not in the Quran." He said, "That's a, that's because of the the." people who were on the desert and they were nomads and they had to protect their women from the eyes of the nomadic men. And that's the reason they came up with that covering women completely it has nothing to do with the religion. It has to do with the culture. I sat there and I thought, Oh, good Lord. And if I applied that to some of the religious beliefs that I had as a Christian, okay, now I understand most of it is built around what, what we have to do, what we have to be to protect it, protect this group in this situation. It was just, it was, I have never been to a minister who made as much sense as Muhammad, Muhammad Salama did at that moment. He was absolutely brilliant. I had no idea that you had visited Saudi Arabia. I was like, I had, I had to <laughs> yeah. swallow hard when I heard that. Yeah. Yeah. I have walked those streets in, a, in pants and a long shirt and three women walking by me in their black garb. And my, my son-in-law started to laugh. And I said, why'd they say Wahab? He said, they said they can't tell whether you're a man and a woman the way you're dressed. I said, Wahab, I can't tell whether they are either the way they're dressed. And he just howled. He said, that never occurred to me, Jane. I said, it never occurred to them either. I understand what they're saying. However, and you know, we went to the women's souk and we only women could be in the souk. And I looked around and I thought, now that's kind of a manly form under that gown. I'll bet you more than women come into the soup. It's, it's probably one of the things that boys do in Saudi Arabia just to push the push the limits, see if they can get away with it. I wouldn't be a bit surprised. And Bob said, "Shut up, Jane. I don't want. I want to hear that, Jane. Shut up, Jane." And I shut up, and we'd walk along, along laughing because you 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 see you see after you've been a Christian for long enough, you can see how you could twist the situation to your advantage. We Christians know how to do that. Mm. We have yeah. turned we have turned we have turned an, an Ethiopian Jew into a man with light brown hair and pale skin. <laughs> Say it again, please. One more time, please. <laughs> we have turned an Ethiopian Jew into a pale faced, light brown haired man. And you know, 
but you, <laughs> that's one of the that's one of the difference between melanemic people and melanaceous and melanotic people. When melanemic people come into a new environment, they immediately adjust the environment to fit their needs. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. We do it with religion. We do it with religion. When melanaceous and melanotic people come into a new environment, they immediately adjust their needs to fit the environment. And we watch what that happens. I watched that in Saudi Arabia. I saw how they, they, they set up the air conditioning in their homes. It's just absolutely beautiful the things they are able to do before pale faces got there and told them how to do it right. Have you read the book Nile Valley Contributions to Civilization? Yes, ma'am. Is that, is that remarkable? Oh, my God. <laughs> I read it and I laugh and I'm glad I'm not on an airplane when I'm reading it because the men who are in first class on the airplane with me would not be amused if I told them what I was reading. So I have to pretend that it, you know, it's a novel or something because they wouldn't appreciate hearing about how the Nile Valley people changed our world. I'm happy to hear you're in first class and I just had the feeling that I wish I could travel with you and carry your bag. <laughs> And and uh, get your food and refill your water and just serve you. <laughs> no, you wouldn't like it. That make make no mistake about this. You would not like having people walk up to you and say you're with that bitch. You're oh well, I brown eyed bitch. Uh, yeah, I, and, 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 and I, 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 I bring these things with me when I travel that might make that kind of interesting. <laughs> but you have to realize that for me, bitch is an acronym for being in total control, honey. And the minute I'm in seeing in control, some man has to put me in my place by calling me the B word. So I laugh and say, you're out of control, aren't you, darling? But I can take care of that for you. And then I reach in my pocket and pull out my little Lorena Bobbitt fruit knife. Now, you didn't hear me say that, but that's what I do. Okay? I'm not a nice person. That's so hip hop of you, Miss Jane, that you make acronyms out of things. Like people oh. in hip hop culture do that all the time. Oh, acronyms are wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Hope is an acronym for holding on to positive energy. Incredible. You know, one of the things that I appreciate from that clip that you mentioned is that, you know, even some of the people that acknowledge the reality of ignorance around race and fear around race, whether they call it racism or, or the, the myth of white supremacy and things like that, whatever the language is, one of the things that people that even do acknowledge that that's a reality, the, the mistakes that they often make is to think that like all oh, the negative effect this must have had on the on, on people of color but the reality that you point out so beautifully that i think is absolutely essential to this whole thing is that it really is a it, it's a mental illness it's a sickness it's a repression of the human experience that happens to melanemic people that you know for quote unquote white people to walk around feeling like i have to be the default human being i i can't have human experiences being cut off from history being cut off from roots being cut off you know being uh, seeing your ancestors your human ancestors as somehow distasteful there's a deep sickness that white supremacy causes inside a person who sees himself as white and i love how you've always highlighted that so beautifully this isn't about healing other it may be cause for the healing of others but that for a white person, quote unquote, to talk about this stuff is about the healing of European people that see themselves as white. But what you don't realize and what most of us melanemic people don't realize is black women, what we call black women, melanaceous and melanotic women are some of the strongest people on the face of the earth. The first modern human being they evolved was undoubtedly a melanotic woman because she couldn't have lived in that environment with all that sunlight without a lot of melanin. She reproduced asexually for a number of years, and then as a result of a mutation of the genes, the first melanotic man was born. 
We are all, we are all descendants of those people, every single one of us. And if we would trace our DNA back far enough, we would find some DNA from an African country in our DNA, every person on the face of the earth. We have to get that into people's heads that we are all members of the same human family. And to separate us because of the because of our body's reaction to the natural environment is totally ridiculous. It makes no sense. It makes us look, and to people of color, it makes us look like we are really ignorant if we haven't realized that yet. They have to look at us and say, well, it's too bad you feel that way, but maybe someday you'll grow up. I think a whole lot of melanaceous and melanotic people are waiting for melanemic people to grow up. We have been in the majority on the face of the earth since, the, since human beings began. We are the last human beings to evolve. They need to know that, but they don't know it because if they find, if they have to realize that, that takes away all their claim to fame. Nobody does anything to get white, period. You're born that way. You didn't, that's not an accomplishment. And we are not God's chosen children. We are just people who happen to be born with less melanin in our skin. And that's it. I'll never forget the woman, a professor at one of the universities in Texas, who stood up and interrupted me in what I was saying and said, Mrs. Elliott, yes, I just look for the person's heart. I said, Madam, if you can see my heart from where you're standing, you should go down to the local hospital and volunteer to be their x-ray machine. You can save them a whole lot of money. She said, you don't understand what I'm saying. I said, I understand exactly what you're saying. She said, I don't have to put up with this. I said, you're right, you don't. And she tore out of the room. And all those students looked like, oh, what's going to happen now? I said, look, she just exercised a freedom that people of color, you students of color on this campus don't have. When you sit there and have some person come in and say, I'm just looking for heart, instead of seeing you as you are, if you complained about that, they'd kick you out of school. She just walked out because she has the freedom to say those things that are absolutely ridiculous and totally ignorant. And they look like, and then they started to applaud like, yeah, yeah, that makes good sense. We ought to be saying things that make good sense to students instead of applauding, applauding somebody who walks out because she doesn't like something that's being said that argues with her, the lie that she's been raised with. The idea of several different races isn't a myth, it's a lie. But if you haven't read the book, The Myth of Race, everybody should read it. The man who wrote it would have said the lie of race, but he couldn't have gotten it published that way. And people wouldn't have read it. So he called it The Myth of Race. And people read it, and they should, because it tells you exactly how this whole thing got started and what in the devil we need to do about it. Everybody should just read that book. I'm, I'm not super intelligent, and I know that. But I read a lot, and I read a lot from people who know what they're talking about.
We're brought to you by Zakat Foundation, and we're so grateful for their support. Zakat Foundation is a global Islamic charity that does tremendous humanitarian work around the globe. Uh, if you listen to previous episodes, we've talked a lot about their orphan relief and support program that operates in 15 countries around the world because it's really dope and it's really groundbreaking. What's important to know about Zakat Foundation is that they have all of these amazing programs all over the world in every major region where human beings live. Zakat Foundation is there supporting them. And I know some of the main decision makers at Zakat Foundation. I've worked with them. I've donated to them. I've done programs with them uh, for quite some time. And some of the important things that, are, uh, that I always highlight is that Zakat Foundation is an Islamic charity. But they don't only help Muslims and they don't use this work to try to convert or proselytize people. It's just not what they do. That's not part of giving in the Islamic tradition. Uh, another thing that's important to note is that they have people on the ground wherever they do their work that ensure that the resources, the goods, that it gets to the people that need it and that deserve it, and that it's done in a way that's dignified. And that's extremely important to me because that's not always the case with charities. Um, their orphan program, for example, is $50 a month to support an orphan and their families. And 100% of that money for that program goes to the orphans and, the, and to their families. None of it goes to salaries. None of it goes to overhead, marketing, advertising. You know, None of that goes to what's supporting this podcast. They have other fundraising they do for that. The other thing that's important to note is that um, Zakat Foundation is run and operated by people who are very serious about examining what are, the, what are the barriers and what are the challenges with doing this work and being really honest about how can we improve? How can we always look to improve? Some of the people that, are, that work in this organization come from the corporate world, and so they want to step away from the corporate world because they don't want it to be all about money. But what they bring from the corporate world into the world of humanitarian giving is a certain standard of excellence that like just because this isn't all about making money doesn't mean that we can't have certain standards of improving and of doing this in, in ways that are excellent and beautiful and dignified. And so this is what I really appreciate about Zakat Foundation and they've been really very generous. Ramadan is coming. Uh, it's, you know, I would encourage Muslims and non-Muslims to really consider Zakat Foundation, follow them, uh, uh, you know, Zakat U.S., Z-A-K-A-T-U-S on social media, check out their website and really consider doing some of your giving with this organization because the work that they do is really profound and I'm very, very honored to be in partnership with them. One of the people that comes up so often on the Travelers Podcast is Rezma Menikim. He's a therapist who specializes in trauma. He's done work with soldiers in Afghanistan. He's done work with people experiencing trauma all throughout different sections of life. And it's really the focus that, that, he, is, that he concentrates his work on. Uh, he has a best-selling New York Times bestseller uh, book called My Grandmother's Hands. Super dope. Recommend it. It's on Audible. You can get the audio version. Uh, there are exercises in that book. My suggestion is to, to do those exercises. Um, he's been on Dr. Phil. He's been on Oprah. He's been on Charlemagne the God's uh, show. He's been on The Breakfast Club. Rezma Minikim is, is, he offers something to the conversation about American society with regard to race and trauma in general and healing uh, that is missing in the conversation. He's one of the rare people that's saying something very unique. Uh, it's not that others aren't talking about trauma. It's not that others aren't talking about healing, but the way that he expresses it is genuinely unique. 
And it's a part of the conversation that I think is extremely important. Go to Resma, R-E-S-M-A-A.com. And uh, he's got a new book coming called The Quaking of America. Uh, I believe it comes out on April the 12th. You can pre-order it on resma.com. Uh, also follow Resma because he's got workshops, his social media, he's dropping gems constantly from himself and from others. Uh, Resma is a therapist. If you're in the Twin Cities area, I highly, I couldn't recommend him more as a therapist, specifically dealing with trauma. My son and I saw Resma together. Uh, and he gave us so much insight into our family's trauma and ways that I was engaging with my son that I didn't realize I was triggering his traumas by some of the ways that I was trying to love him. And that the way that my traumas, you know, my friends that were murdered um, were, were informing and shaping the way that I was responding to my son with context that he didn't have. So a lot of us have critique about what's going on and, and we have observations but what Resma offers are observations based in healing, based in healing the human body, healing the human psyche, healing the human mind. Uh, profoundly, profoundly important. And I'm really, really grateful to be in partnership with our dear friend and brother and teacher, Resma Minikin. I want to thank you for listening to the podcast, for watching it. And I really want to remind everyone that, you know, a podcast is an uphill battle <laughs> because everybody's got them. You know what I mean? And I know every rapper, every comedian, every part, everybody thinks they need a podcast. And I really understand that. Um, but whenever somebody says they have a podcast, it's like, man, I don't want to necessarily hear that. So even someone like myself that's really blessed that ac across my social media platforms, I have half a million total subscribers. Some of those people might be the same people. I don't know. Uh, there, I'm sure there are analytics I could find for that, but I don't have them. But even within my listener group that listens to my music and follows my music career, the majority of them aren't aware that we have a podcast, no matter how much we say it. The best way to, if you're enjoying these conversations, the best way to support is to share it. Like to, to take, you know, the, the links or the clips or whatever that you like and to share them. And to say like, hey, these conversations are happening. Because I hope that what we're doing here is unique. I hope that, you know, I know that I need my teachers, I need my community. And a lot of my community are spiritual people, they're thought leaders, they're political leaders, and they're artists, and they're educators. And I need to check in with these people. Like, I need to share life with these people. I'm still learning a lot as a podcaster. I'm still learning how to do all of this. When I listen to myself, I always love what the guests are saying. And then when I hear myself, it's like, man, you have a lot to improve there, my friend. And, but I'm happy to be on this journey and I'm really grateful that you're here. But if you're listening, please like, share, subscribe, comment, rate, all that stuff. But please share it. That's my main ask. Share it, share it, share it. If you go to brotherali.com, there's a section called join. And you'll see that we have what we call a caravan, which is our community of supporters. And there are different levels at which people can engage. Um, you know, there's one where you, you just get the podcast a day early without the commercials. Uh, there's one where you get uh, access to ask me anything you get free um, you know recordings you get free uh, digital gift boxes and gift packages and things like that and then at the highest level we have a private slack channel 
where we limit the number of people so that we can actually grow intimate relationships and conversations with people that are in the caravan. And so we have this ongoing dialogue with me and the other supporters where people are growing to know one another. They're people from different walks of life, people from different uh, backgrounds. And people come in there and they share their frustrations and they share their celebrations. And I'm telling you, like some of them, some of us are like Orthodox practicing Muslims. Some of us are, you know, I, I don't want to share other people's realities, but the truth is that there are people for, that wouldn't, might not know each other in other walks of life that are sharing life and, and gathering based on the reality that we're co-travelers in this life. Whether you think we were somewhere before and what you think that was, whether you think we're going to be somewhere after this and what you think that might be, the reality is that we're here in place and time now and we're struggling with the condition of the world and we're struggling with ourselves, trying to put some paint where it ain't, trying to leave the world in our, better than we found it, trying to be better today than we were yesterday, trying to contribute to the, all the beauty in this whole life. So head to brotherali.com and check out the join section. My story, Miss Jane, is that, you know, I was born to a European-American family. I'm an albino, like I said, got a lot of, they call it bullying now, but just like a lot of really, you know, dehumanizing treatment and talk and things like that. And then Black people made me understand how to live life and how to feel good about myself, how to connect to virtue, how to connect to a sense of self. The idea of Black is beautiful made me stop trying to dye my hair blonde, and it, it made me embrace myself and how I am and who I am. And along the way, I got very good at rapping. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so then I started rapping and black people never rejected me because black people are, are you know, not exclusive. Uh, the, the parents, the mother and father of all of humanity, not exclusive. Um, but it's very interesting that, you know, I had a role in that in that world. But as soon as other uh, uh, melanemic people, the children of Europeans, saw how good I was at rapping, they they rushed to me and flocked to me. And then once I realized like, okay, a lot of my audience is white. I've been raised by black people. I have to tell, I have to say the things I know. I didn't necessarily sign up for that, but I love Malcolm X. I love all the, you know, I love, I love Miss Jane Elliott. You know what I mean? <laughs> I have to say what I'm saying. So the second I started doing that, the backlash and the disowning and the, the, the names and the, you know, everything from the FBI coming to my house to all of this stuff. Can you please talk to us about what has the response been from the overwhelming majority of people who think they're white to the truths that you tell? Oh, they deny it. They deny it. Oh, they, oh God. They kicked me out of the Methodist church in Riceville, Iowa, in Osage, Iowa. The minister came out and said, could you do me a favor after we had talked for a long time? Well, sure. Well, would you please find another place to worship on Sunday morning? I said, well, I can find that. I can do that. But why would you ask that? And he said, because my parishioners don't like the words you say during the service. I call God she... I call God he. I think God is a spirit and has neither gender nor color. I use the words you aren't supposed to use. And so they asked me to leave the Methodist church. And as, as I drove by there the next Sunday morning, I thought, well, that was Christian of them, wasn't it? And that's the problem. We use religion to divide us. Religion ought to make us come to bring us together instead of dividing us. We need to stop that kind of division. We need to realize that. We have, we, melanemic people, have made God into our image instead of the other way around. We have made God into someone that we can worship. I, I suggest to people of color now, when Christmas time comes, go down to the local crush. 
take that Pillsbury Doughboy doll out of that manger and put in a black doll. And then take pictures of the people who come up and see that and have a new real re, a, a reawakening of their souls when they see that the person that they're worshiping was made by us to look like someone we can worship. This makes no sense unless you're melanemic and you want to preserve the myth of white superiority. Every time I do a speech now, every time I do a virtual speech, every time I walk down the street, somebody says to me, well, because of white privilege, I say, wait just a minute before you finish that sentence. White privilege is a lie. We aren't white, number one. Privilege is something you get as a reward for having done something special and good. What, what, what white privilege is in this country ought to be called unearned advantages due to ignorance about skin color. Yes, This isn't white yes. privileges. This yes. is unearned advantages due to ignorance about skin color. And as long as we can perpetuate the myth of the rightness of whiteness, that's how long we'll, we will be dealing with what we call white privilege. The woman who wrote that paper should now, and she, I think she wrote it in 1987, she should now go back and she has tried to fix the first five because they make no sense. I can do these things because of my race. Well, evidently she didn't know in 1987 that we're all members of the same race. Now, if she can do these things because of her race, then everybody can do these things, right? No, only if you're white. Well, you can't be white as long as you have one iota of black blood, and we all do. So the whole thing is, is just she, she, she does what a whole lot of writers are doing right now, making excuses or justifying unacceptable pale-faced behaviors. You know, the book about white, white fragility. We aren't white and we aren't fragile. But if you can find ways to explain why we behave the way we do and find excuses for our behavior instead of saying the truth, which is there are no white people and we need to get over it and we need to start acting like the rest of the world. And we need to accept our position as just another human being instead of superior. We aren't supreme. You can make a picture of the founding fathers that are as white as the driven snow, but then you have to make a picture of some of their children and some of Thomas Jefferson's children were very dark skinned. Yes, ma'am. We are going to talk about that. And we aren't going to talk about the fact that, <laughs> that Abraham Lincoln has the hair he has and the length of the arms and legs that he has and the facial features that he has because he's a Melungeon, part yes, white, part black, and part Cherokee Indian. We are not going to tell those things in school because somebody would accuse us of critical race theory. No, that's the truth. It's yes, all right to realize that that man had that strength and that ability to be compassionate toward all kinds of people because of what he was. You know, I love the, the fact that you corrected the, the idea of white privilege and it's a white unearned advantage. Uh, there's a, a therapist and an educator that I love. He's a dear friend of mine named Resma Menikin. He wrote a New York Times bestselling book called My Grandmother's Hands. Have you had a chance to check out this book? Mr. I've heard it, but I've never read it. But now I will. My Grandmother's Hands. I'll write it down. 
Yes, ma'am. He talks a lot about, uh, he, he's a therapist that focuses on trauma. And so he speaks about the racial realities in America with regard to the highly, ch the high charge of race. And then also, and, and white advantage is one of the things that he talks about instead of privilege. Uh, and so, so you all are aligned on that. But he also speaks about the reality that we do have these group experiences. So some people say it like this. They say that race is science fiction, but a social reality. How, what, what's the language that you prefer to use around the fact that, or, or do you accept the idea or, and, and agree with the idea that although genetically we're not as different as we may believe that we are, but there are group experiences that absolutely inform the way that we are in the world and in ourselves? There are cultural differences that are different. There's no doubt about it. There have always been cultural differences, that, but there has not always been racism. This started in the 15th, 14th and 15th century. This is you're not born a racist. Nobody is born a racist. And I was highly upset when the people last week asked the judge, the nominee for the Supreme Court, whether can a baby be a racist? For God's sake, what kind of a question is that? Number one, <laughs> I was just so appalled at the ignorance of those four melanemic males. How dare they treat that woman that way when she was obviously smarter she alone was smarter than all four of them. And they attacked her on the basis of she wasn't tough enough on Pete, the young man, the 18-year-old man who sold pornographic materials. I don't say what you're thinking, Jane. Don't say that, Jane. No, I won't. I won't say what I'm thinking. But for four grown men to spend that much time talking about pornography, I was glad their crotches were covered, were behind the desk. Because I think those guys were being stimulated by what they were saying and what they were talking about having seen. And I thought that was as bad an example of people who are in, are in the business of writing laws for this country as I have ever seen in my life. And these are the top. These are the people who are running this show. Any person of color watching that had to be absolutely appalled at the ignorance that they were showing. You know, as a, as a person who is melanemic of European descent, who talks to white people about racism, I, the, I hear the same arguments over and over and over again, the same retorts, the same responses and replies. They're not different. I mean, there's maybe about four or five of them. And I remember at some point I thought, you know, I should just write these out and then prepare my answers for them and just publish them so I can just link them when people say them in the comments. And you and that's did. All, that's, that's, but that, but that's, already, that's already been done. Yes, ma'am. That's already been done. And you can go to my website and you can yes. download those statements, the typical statements, the clarifications of the statements, the commitments to combat racism and a bibliography, which if you read everything on that bibliography, you will never say to another person of color, when I see you, I don't see you black. Nobody ever says to me, when I see you, I don't see you white. They think they'd be afraid to say that because I'm so proud of what I am. No, I'm not proud of this skin color. I consider this skin color a detriment in many cases right now, particularly because of the hole in the ozone layer, which allows more and more sunlight to enter our environment, which is going to cause the death of a whole lot of people who look like me because of melanoma. So this is not an advantage. People need to realize that. And once people do realize that and realize that we're all members of the same race, you're going to see melanemic people pursuing. Then melanemic men are going to be pursuing melanaceous and melanotic women so that their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren will live longer. That is what is in our future. 
You need to realize that. And people who are people of color need to realize that they've got it going on. They're going to be here longer. They were here first and they will be here last. (laughs) I wish I had a gun I could shoot in the air when you say these things. (laughs) No, but some people wish they had one. They could shoot it at me, not into the air, into my air. I understand that. I I understand that. I I bring out the, the killer instinct in a whole lot of people. And I understand that because I'm Please saying something to me don't about that, Miss Jane. What what are what are some of the responses that you receive from? Uh, you know, I want to talk about what their retorts are and and how you correct them. But I'm really curious because I know what I've received in you know from the year 2003 until now that I've been doing the the trying to make whatever contribution I can. But you started in the 60s when they killed Viola Liuzzo, yeah, who was on the Freedom Rides, and you started in the 60s when I mean death threats were not a joke. And I'm I'm really curious if you could please share with me and also the people that are listening and watching what are, what are the Anything that you are willing to share with us, man, we would really appreciate in terms of the, the vitriol that you've received for the truth that you tell. Well, my, my four offspring who went to school in that school where I was a teaching, was where I was a teacher, were beaten. They were spit on. Their belongings were destroyed. They were physically and verbally abused by their peers, by some of their teachers and some of the parents of their peers. My parents lost their business because they raised the town's only N-word lover. And to this day, that's what I am called by 20 to 20% of the people in the town in which my great-grandfather was one of the first settlers. I'm still called the town's only N-word lover. And I say, thank you very much. I'd rather be a lover than a, than a hater any day. Go ahead, call me a lover. I, I appreciate loving. I had four children in five years because of loving, and I enjoyed every minute of it. Now, <laughs> I just, see, I have, I have, I, I'm a terrible person where words are concerned. I believe that words are the most... Somebody has said, most powerful weapon devised by humankind. We destroy people with words all the time. So I turn those words back on them, and I force them to see themselves as I see them. And then they don't talk to me at all anymore. I have been, you know, I can, I can, walk, through, I can walk through the halls in the Ricefield Community Elementary School, and not one teacher would speak to me for eight hours a day. It was probably the nicest thing they could ever do to, do to me. I didn't, have to, I didn't have to join in their gossiping. I didn't have to join in there standing outside their room talking about what an awful person I was. And I realized that when they were talking about me, they were leaving somebody else alone. As long as they were talking about me, they weren't criticizing somebody else. Some people get upset when they're being criticized. I get egged on. I'm sorry, but that is a, you want to criticize me? I'll prove to you that you're right and you aren't going to like what you're right about. So then they just, they avoid me like the plague. It is just, I can walk into a room and all conversation stops. Because people are afraid that the racist things they're saying, I'll hear and I'll attack them for. So it's just, it's the strangest, it's the strangest feeling you could ever imagine walking into a group of your peers and having everybody stop talking and then turn away so that they don't see me. It's just, it was just a real learning experience. And when the, when the principal's wife at the elementary level stopped me at a class, at a teacher's meeting one day and said, Jane, you've got to get your kids out of here. I said, why? She said, these teachers are trying to destroy your children. And they're having fun with it. Get your kids out of here. So we moved from the town in which I had been born and raised to Osage so that my kids could be in a different school. My kids suffered greatly as a result of what I was doing. And I had the choice to say I was wrong and give it up and stop what they were doing to my kids. Or to say they are wrong to my children and to keep on doing the right thing. And I would tell my dad what was going on at school after a day of of 
all this ugliness. And he'd say, keep smiling. They'll wonder what the hell you've been up to. So I'd smile through the hall and I'd sing through the hall and I'd dance through the hall. And I was as happy as if, as if I wasn't hated. You can be hated for a long time, but you, you, you don't allow it to destroy you. And I didn't. And I won't. And I haven't. It's been extremely hard for my two oldest kids. The two younger ones didn't have as hard a time, but my two older ones had a really hard time in junior high and high school because of their N-word lover mother. I won't forget the time I did a speech in Uniontown, Pennsylvania with the teachers in that system. And I put them through the blue-eyed, brown-eyed exercise in a very informal way in the morning. In the afternoon, the death threats began. And the... <laughs> Teachers called the principal and said, if you don't get that bitch out of town, we're going to shoot her. So every place I went the next day, that, the rest of that day, and the next day, every place I went, I was accompanied by a black man, black is what he called him, in the back seat of the car with his hand inside an open briefcase while we were riding from place to place. And I had to sit in the front seat, and he had to sit in the back with his hand inside this open briefcase. <laughs> we got to one place, and he was sitting up there watching what was going on, and I was doing my thing. And his hand was inside that briefcase. And when we got ready to leave, I said, look, what's going on here? He said, Jane, we're going to get you out of town. So he took me to a, a home and he, he made me sit in the front seat beside him. And we pulled up parallel to the sidewalk of this house. And it was one of those that are, you know, lots of steps up to the house. Brownstone is that what it's called. And there was a black person, two black people on each of those steps standing there facing one another. He said, now, when I open this door, you slide across this seat and run up those steps. I said, what's going on? He said, slide across the seat and run up those steps, Mrs. Elliot. So he opened the door and stepped back and held the door open. And I ran up the steps. And these guys are standing there, each, each two of them on each step. We got inside and everybody was just really tense and really upset. And I thought, well, no, and nobody was talking to me. They were just saying, what are we going to do? We'll do this. They were making their plans. And then when we got ready to leave, he said, run down those steps and get into that car. So I ran down the steps and got in. There were people on each on each of the steps, got into the car, they shut the car. Three carloads of black men followed us to the Pennsylvania Turnpike because they said, and I said on the way, look, Anna S. Cunningham was the head of the Human Relations Department in Pennsylvania at that time. I said, what's going on here? She said, Jane, we've got to get you out of town. The teachers threatened to kill you. We don't want you killed in Uniontown, Pennsylvania. So she took me to, to, to Harrisburg, and the next morning I got up all alone, and I was at the, in a motel, two-story motel, and I opened the door of my room, and I looked out, and I thought behind one of those windows could be the person who was sent here to shoot me. And I backed up, and I closed the door, and I thought, now you've got a problem. You've got to make a decision, and you've got to do it now. You can stand here and be terrified and never do this work again, or you can step in your shoulders, get your luggage, walk to the desk and get out of here. Now, what are you going to do? And I had four children at home and a husband whom I absolutely adored. I stiffened my shoulders because I thought, I guess I thought if my shoulders were stiff enough, the bullets would bounce off. You do really strange things when you're scared. Yes, you do. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. And I took my car luggage card in my hand and I put my purse over my shoulder. I opened that door and I walked quickly. I didn't run because I think you don't, you don't run, you run, you don't run because you're scared. You're scared because you run. If you start running, you've got the adrenaline going. You do not run. You walk. And I walked straight to the desk and I got there and I thought, 
Well, look what you've done. You've let those sons of bitches scare you to death. This will never happen to me again. And I've been hit by a white male several times as a result of doing the exercise. While doing the exercise, I've never been scared and I'll never be scared again. Because what can you do? Kill me? If you kill me, you make a heroin out of me. And you make what I say ever so much more important. So they're going to let me live for as long as they possibly can because they don't want to be, they don't want to be the reason I'm dead. And I know that. I'm perfectly aware that I have an insurance policy. I don't have one anymore, but I did have one for a while. Because <laughs> Daryl said, what, what's going to happen if they kill you? I said, we'll take out an insurance policy. So we took out a life insurance policy on me so that if they killed me, he would have enough money to raise the kids on. Well, didn't have to worry about that after they realized that killing her is not the answer to your problem. Martin Luther King Jr. wouldn't have died a hero if we had let him live. And neither would Malcolm X. We have been very careful about the people we allowed to die. You've been doing this work for so long. First of all, you just shared a lot with us and for your sacrifices and, and the sacrifices wait, of your, wait, your wait, husband wait, and your wait, children. Wait, 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 wait. Let me put a stop to that right now. Yes, ma'am. I haven't made any sacrifices. Make no mistake about this. I have been blessed to have a big mouth and a fairly sharp wit and to have a really strong constitution that says when people say something ugly about me, well, when you point that finger at me, you're pointing three of them back at you. So I'm not going to listen to that. You have an idea of what I am. I am. I'm not, I have not sacrificed greatly. Make no mistake about this. I have done what I think is right. And whether or not the rest of the world agrees with it, that's not a sacrifice to do what you think is right. To do what you know is wrong, that would be, for me, to do what is wrong would be to deny my very human being. And I cannot do that. Now, that doesn't, I, I, have, I have made no sacrifices. My kids have. And they, they didn't choose to. They didn't choose to have me for a mother. My kids have had some really ugly experiences because of the ignorance about skin color. But they are a different kind of citizen than most of my nieces and nephews and then most of my relatives, most of my relatives, my student, my children are different because they have taken a lot of abuse because of what I do, not because of skin color, because, but because of their mother. And I'm sorry for that. But we have the most beautiful part Hispanic. Great, I have great grandchild. I have a grandson who is married to a melanatic, a melanaceous woman, and they are going to have children. And I have one, I have two grandchildren who are part Saudi Arabian, who are Muslim. And here I am in this, in this international family in Riceville, Iowa, and now, and now in Osage, Iowa. And I laugh all the way to the bank, quite frankly. And I'm not, and, and I have not, please do not say to people, Jane Elliott has sacrificed a lot. I have not sacrificed by refusing to go, to go along, to get along. That's not a sacrifice. A lot, of, a lot of people have done it over history, the history of humankind. A lot of people have said, I'm not going to go along with this. And there's no way you can make me go along with this. You hang me from that yard arm and I will still be saying, you're wrong. In the grave. Yeah, hey, hey, this is not a sacrifice. This is a job. <laughs>
We've talked for this past couple months now on this podcast about vice-gerent makers and merchants of fine men's tailored clothing. Uh, it's something that I can't recommend enough, um, that we be intentional about all things in life, that all of the things that we give ourselves to and the things that we take in, so what we put out and what we take in, and then what we bring around others. We're constantly impacting others. Uh, you know, there are people that'll say like, you know, keep your political opinions to yourself, keep your religion to yourself, keep your so-and-so to yourself. And we sure, certainly should strive to do that to a degree. But the reality is that all of us, the way we are is impacting other people. Um, you know, if, if somebody shows up uh, dressed like a nun, uh, that's a reminder of God. It's a reminder of the Catholic Church. It's a reminder. So for some people, it's going to be a reminder of God and what's beautiful in their life. For some people, it's going to be a reminder of, like for my wife, for example, she was a, went, was a Catholic as a, as a young girl, and the nuns remind her of all types of loving, beautiful interactions that she had of cooking food with them and serving the church with them. You know, for other people, it might remind them of an abuse that they suffered, or it might remind them of uh, something that, you know, some sort of colonialism or something that they attribute to the Catholic Church. The ways we show up are going to affect other people. If somebody comes into public um, wearing a bikini, <laughs> you know, and maybe, a maybe, maybe another person, you know, somebody might feel empowered by that. Somebody else might be struggling with a porn addiction or a sex addiction. The ways that we show up are always affecting other people. People tell me all the time, like, man, keep your religion to yourself. And then they're smoking cannabis, you know what I'm saying? And like, I don't smoke weed. So like when I'm in your, when I'm in your environment, now I smell like, and I'm being, and I get contact because I don't smoke. So if I'm around certain friends of mine, I come out smelling like and even be in, being impacted by substances that they're choosing to consume. And I have no judgment for people that do that. But it's like, you know, the reality is that none of us are really keeping our experience to ourselves. We're always impacting each other. So the best that we can do is to be intentional about the way that we do that. And beautifying our appearance in ways that are dignified um, is always helpful. And being intentional about things is always a good look. It's always helpful. Um, we might not agree on the particulars, but there's a big difference between when somebody's being intentional and when they're not. So my man Osman the Taylor in Chicago is somebody that you could go and sit with. He'll measure you, he'll talk to you, he'll get your vibe. Um, you look at colors together, you look at fabrics together. You talk about how do I want this to fit? How do I want to feel? You know, what are the what are the the, the things that I want to accentuate, you know what I mean? What are some of the things that I want to keep private? You know what I mean? It's a very, very beautiful experience. So follow them online, check out their website, Vice Gerent, V-I-C-E, Vice Gerent, G-E-R-E-N-T, official on social media. Um, follow them, go get a fitting if you're in the Chicago area. There are listeners of the podcast that have traveled to, traveled to Chicago for that purpose. If you follow Osman the Taylor, he does travel and he'll make a visit sometimes. He'll, you know, you'll see that he's going to be in Boston. He's going to be in Houston. Um, this is owned and operated by people of color. Um, it's sustainable. There's no sweatshop business involved. It's clo uh, there's clothing made for you that you can feel good about wearing. Vice Jaren official. Unity Productions Foundation has been a partner on the podcast. We're very grateful for that because it speaks directly to what what I do and what this podcast is about and, and what my 
beautiful guests do, which is really harnessing the power of creativity to insist upon the full humanity of, of people. That, that culture is here, art is here to remind us of the great why of it all. And so Unity Productions is a group that makes these really beautiful productions based on unity of the human family. But their foundation specifically is their attempt in a really beautiful way to give back based on the, on the, the gifts and the bounties that we're able to have as artists. And the particular project that they have that I'm involved in is called Unfold Your Own Myth. UPF, Unity Productions Foundation, has brought together writers, songwriters, poets, storytellers to work with young people in particular on how to engage their own story, how to document their story and how to share it with others. Because it reminds them and it, it encourages them to, to really sit with the fact that you're a human being, you are important, your story does matter. You know, maybe you come from a part of the world, they, they, they've done great work with, um, you know, with people in Afghanistan, for example. So it's like, maybe you're from a part of the world where we just hear about the war that happened in your country, but you're not a war, you're a human being. You've got a story, you've got likes and dislikes, you got funny stuff that's happened to you. You have horrible things that have happened to you. You have uh, a mother and, and you have friends and you have a cat and you have, you know, and you look at the sun a certain way and you have certain questions about flowers and you make up little riddles and all these things are about you. They're very important because in our belief, the creator willed you into existence and into being with all of the details that are true about you. And so you are a book that we want to read, you know? And so the more you examine your book and share it with us, it helps you and it helps us. So uh, this particular um, seminar is called Unfold Your Own Myth. And the reason that they're, that they're advertising and sharing on this platform and supporting this platform, the Travelers Podcast, is because they want to share that online seminar that they've developed. So go to upf.tv slash unfold and share the seminar. Uh, if you work with youth, if, you were, if, you, if you're a teacher, if you're an educator, if you're an organizer, uh, if you work w really with any group of people, even, not, even if it's not youth, you might manage a team at a corporation or you might have an upstart or you might be an artist looking to bring together the people in your team and in your crew. Wherever people gather, it's important for them and us to examine our own stories and unfold our own myths. So check out UPF and we're very, very grateful to be partnering with them on the Travelers Podcast. There was a fourth grade teacher while I was going through this agony, as they call it, in Riceville, who would spend the first half hour of every school day talking to the students about what an awful teacher Jane Elliott was. And the students told me that. And they'd say, well, today, she said, I said, well, that's her opinion. And you, you have to sit there and listen to it. So just sit there and practice the listening skills. Keep your eyes on the person who's speaking. Have quiet hands, feet, and mouths. Decide to learn something. And then after you learn it, then, then you go and make your own decision. But you know whether she's telling the truth. You are required to listen to her. So you practice the listening skills. And the other fourth grade teacher said, boy, Mrs. Elliott's kids are always great listeners. They know the third grade program and they know how to listen. But this other teacher would say, here are the things that's wrong with Jane Elliott for half an hour every morning. Does this make sense to you? But you, but this, you see, that's, she was doing what we do in the schools in this country. 
Here are the good people. Here are the ones who have made, who have done the investigating, who have done the exploring, who have done the discovering, who have done yes. the teaching, who have done the in inventing. These are all melanemic males who have done all these things. Right. And none of them obviously had a mother. <laughs> they sprang from their father's heads by some kind of magic. And so this is what kids learn in school. Only white males have done valuable things. Tell me, tell me 10 women that you learned about in school, grades K through 12, who did valuable things for this country or for, human, for, the, for the human condition. I know Betsy Ross sewed a flag. <laughs> that isn't true either. That isn't true either, but that's all right if you want to believe it. <laughs> of course. Of course. The whole thing is so, but I said, give me the names of 10 men mm -hmm. that made valuable contributions to humankind. You can run down Rattle 40 all, of them. All day. Yes, ma'am. And they would all be pale, stale males. With, with a large part of the story left out of who they learned from or who influenced them or who really invented the thing that they took credit for or, you know, along with their along with, you know, and it actually is an affront to the actual contributions that have been made to tell these lies of omission about the, the community or the inspiration or the teachers or the contributors. You know, it's 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 an actual affront to people who do actually make contributions. Well, and it makes every contribution, the actual contribution that you make look very, very puny. Yes, ma'am. If what you haven't done is discover this continent. This continent was dis discovered between 20,000 and 10,000 years before Christopher Columbus was a gleam in his father's eye. And it was discovered by people from Africa. Yes, those, those early, early people shouldn't have been called Indians. They should have been called Africans because that's what they were. And that's, what the, that's where the Native Americans came from, from those same people from the area of the equator. We don't want to say that. We don't want to admit that because if that's true, most of what we have been taught is a lie. Do you see people that would be understood to be white or called white uh, who have come after you? I think about uh, people like Tim Wise and others that have spoken truth. Do you have advice for them or do you have critique for those that come after you or advice? Yeah, I have the piece of advice, which is don't think too much of yourself. You're a white male, but that doesn't make you all knowledgeable, all wise, and all supreme. You need to know that. If you want to know what's going on, you need to read a whole lot of books written by people of other color groups. And you need to realize that you are white only because your body reacts to the natural environment in different ways. And you need to realize that the fact that you are male does not mean that your brain is bigger than anybody else's. Unless you, unless, you, um, unless you are prepared to admit that you don't know everything, and I'm prepared to admit that I don't know any more than the, I don't know enough to open my mouth in the morning. However, about this topic, I know more than a whole lot of people do because I've listened to a whole lot of people of color. What I know, I haven't learned from listening to white folks. I've learned a whole lot by reading a whole lot of books and, and listening to a whole lot of people of color. Oh, yes, my God, you can't. I stood beside Linda Guillory while I was working for U.S. West doing the blue eyed brown eyed exercise with so-called adults three twice a week, three times a week for, oh, for five years. It was it was amazing. And I was standing beside this black woman and this skinny little white woman 
white, I mean white, came diddling up to her, and diddling means short, making short, rapid steps. Whenever I, I say diddling, I know exactly what you mean by diddling. I, I can know, see diddling. I know, yes, it, yeah, I know it, but my daughter always thinks it's something. I said, Mom, don't use that word, Sarah. This is the right word. So this woman diddles up to me on her high heels, skinny little person, and she stands in front of Linda Gillery and says, Linda, when I see you, I don't see you black. And I thought, oh, my God, there's going to be bloodshed here. I backed up because I had to wear that suit the next day. And Linda Gillery looked at this fool and she said, I think we need to make an, a, an appointment with the optometrist. You obviously have an eye problem. <laughs> and this woman, oh, she said, do you want me to make the appointment or, or will you do it? I don't need an appointment with the eye optometrist. And she turned and diddled away even faster than she diddled up to her. And a, I double said, diddle. a double diddle? <laughs> Yeah, a double diddle. She did a, a double diddle. diddle. <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny when you realize how ignorant she was behaving. She was dressed perfectly, but she was acting like a third, a third grader who hadn't been through the exercise. And I said to Linda, Linda, that was brilliant. She said, what did you expect me to say? She said, I get that all the time. And that's the response. I give them all the time. I'll bet she'll never say that again. I said, well, I'll bet she'll choose her audience very carefully. And that's what melanemic people have to do. If you're going to run your mouth and use those those statements that are made in the typical statements in my on my website, realize that somebody may have read the clarifications and you might be corrected immediately and publicly. And that's another thing I've learned. You don't, when somebody makes a racist remark, you don't say to yourself, well, we'll talk about it later. Or you don't go and say, could, could we go out in the hall and talk about that? No, yes, when it's made, yes. you need to say right there, do you realize yes, what you just did? Are you really yes, that ignorant or, or are you just insensitive? Which mm -hmm. is it? And then they yes. don't talk to you for a long time and everybody in the group feels sorry for them. Right. That's right. That's right. And then, and then people will come and tell you in private, I'm so glad you said what you said. Well, why didn't you support oh, yeah. me when I was in front? Why didn't you, why didn't you say, I agree? Where, yeah, was your, say, where, where was your thank you when we were all in the room and I was the only yeah, person saying it? Yeah, when people say that to me, I say, and where were you? Where the hell were you? It right. was your mouth. Were you, were you unable to speak at that moment? Don't tell me you approve of what I said when you didn't support it when I was saying it. Mr. Well, Dana, I'm sorry you feel that way. <laughs> I'm sorry you feel that way. Yeah, amazing, <laughs> amazing. I was just at a, at a quote unquote reggae festival called Reggae Rise Up. I was one of the only hip hop artists there. And I just couldn't help but notice that this there, it's all white, almost entirely white bill of artists. Almost all of the fans are white. And the only black people there, and this is in Florida, are the stagehands and the security people. And so I said, I know I'm a guest here. I know I'm not a reggae artist, but what is reggae music? It's black music that was that was created in this part of the world, along with rock and, and hip hop and jazz and blues and spirituals to remind us of what it means to be human, to survive this ignorance. And then what are we rising up against? And, you know, and I said, so this can either be a cultural appropriate appropriation thing or this can be a real revolution. It depends on you. And it, it's dead silent. Some people left the stage. Yeah. Yep. And so then I, then I go back sta back backstage, Miss Jane, to where the, the, the artists are. And all these white artists are saying, thank you so much for what you said. Yes. Okay. You're about to take the stage. Now you can say it. Right, right, right. But they don't say it. That kind of experience is rather enlightening. Yes, it tells you, yeah, it tells you that those who go out and say what they have to say and everybody loves them are mm. going to be all right. But I'm not about being loved. I'm about being listened to 
And I'm about having people learn something from what I'm saying, something that will change the way they see themselves and people around them. I don't care how they feel about me. I really don't. I care about how they feel about that little black kid, what we call black kid, that little melanaceous or melanotic kid who isn't going to be treated fairly in the classroom, not because of the color of his skin, but because he has an ignorant teacher at the front of the room who stands up the first day of school and says, when I see people, I don't see people as black or bright, as black or when I see people, I don't see people as brown, black or white or brown or yellow. I just see people as people. By God, that's a racist statement. No teacher has the right to say that. They usually say, I don't see people as red or white or black. Anyway, they never put the word white in there. Number right. one. A lot of times they say purple and polka dots. And oh, God. Like yes. if, if, you're, if you're not white, you might as well have polka dots. That's, yes, how, yes. Center, that's how, center, how much we're going to center whiteness, that yes, we're such yes. the standard of everything. If you're not white, you might as well have polka dots. Yes. I, don't care if you're, I, don't, I don't care if you're pink or yes. blue. Yeah, like if you're say, pink or blue, you're, 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 you're suffocating yeah. if you're pink and blue. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I don't care whether you're black or brown or white or pink, pink, pink purple with pink polka dots. I'm going to treat you all the same. No teacher is going to treat all of her children the same because they are not all the same. You can't treat the child who is dyslexic and who's not does not hear words the way they're said and does not see words the way they're written. You can't say to a group of those children and say, now stand in front of them and say, hold up your right hand. Now, the kids that are facing you are going to hold up the hand on the same side that your hand is, and they're going to hold up their left hand. Because you say, hold up your right hand, and you're facing them, so they hold up the hand that they see on the same side, and they're going to hold up their left hand. She's going to put the words, turn to page 92 in your book, and you're going to have a bunch of kids who are going to go like this and watch this smart kid beside them until they get to the same picture on the same page that that kid's on, and then they're going to know on the right page. Because when you put the word number 93 on the board, half of those kids, at least 20% of them, are going to see 39. Some of them are going to see 63. They are not going to see that number the way it's written, and they are not going to hear what you say. When you talk to a dyslexic boy <laughs> and you say, turn to page 65 and answer the first five questions, you might as well say, "Twas brilliant and the slithy trove did gyre and jimble in the wave. Because <laughs> he isn't hearing what you're saying because he has, a, he has a different, he doesn't hear words the way they're said. And then he gets put in the lower reading class because he doesn't know what the hell you're talking about. And if you don't know about dyslexia as a teacher, neither do you know what the hell you're talking about. So you are two equally ignorant people, but you're getting paid to be ignorant and to increase his ignorance. And he's getting, he doesn't get paid to be there. He just has to be there and put up with this. If we could, if I could get my hands on every education major and teach them how to teach the dyslexic child how to read and how to spell, I could change the history of the human race. Hello, you'll have to call me back. I'm busy right now. Now they have to make a decision. That was dope. That was great. <laughs> if, we could, if we could just do that, if every, when you see the film, The Eye of the Storm, have you seen it? And if you haven't, yes, yes, every one of Anytime. those kids, every one of those kids is mildly to severely dyslexic. They came into my classroom reading at the first grade level, and they had been, and some of them had been in pre-spin, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, and some of them went through pre-first and then second. So some of them had been in school five years by the time I got them. 
they came into my room reading about not even into the second grade level yet. By the time they left my classroom, nine months later, they were reading from the fourth to the sixth grade level. Some of their reading skills were their, their independent reading levels were at the sixth grade level. Every teacher who had had them before I did said, you're never going to teach them to read. Those kids can't read. They're just the, and the other two third grade teachers called my group, the dummy group. To my kids' faces. So, they should be fired on the spot. Of they course they should have and every day I drive home from work because I'd moved to Osage. I drive home from work and I'd, I'd picture one of them in front of my car and I'd accelerate. And <laughs> I mental murder is what I was engaged in. And one day, I, and that was when I was teaching at the junior high and this crap was still happening. And I went to a teacher's meeting and there was that teacher and I thought, what are you doing here? I thought I killed you. And then I thought, oh my God, look what you've done. You've dehumanized yourself to the point where you want her dead. I didn't want her dead. But when another one who had been really vicious about me and my son uh, developed breast cancer, everybody was so sad. And I thought, well, sometimes the evil that men do lives after them, and sometimes it lives with them. Mm. And it manifests itself in ways that you don't want to imagine. I think our evil can eat us up. You can't be that angry and that. I don't know. I asked, somebody's writing a book about this, and he said, what's the, what's the thing you've learned the most? And I said, what's the biggest mistake you made while you were doing this work? And I said, I underestimated, I, I overestimated the Christianity of my peers, and I underestimated their jealousy. And that's exactly what I did. I expected them to act like Christians. And I didn't see any reason, since I was taking all this garbage that they should be jealous of me but they had to destroy me in order to feel better about themselves and that's too bad yes ma'am you know those of us that those of us that that grew up with the benefit of having jane elliott in the world we would if if god sees fit that we outlive you and we pray that you have a long life and that we'll do that don't do that. You have no idea what sorry, it feels like sorry, to get old. Sorry, do not sorry, do that. I pray that you have life. a long, healthy, easy, good, beautiful life, and that no. you're healthy all the way up to the last. <laughs> no. Do, I'm going to change not, my prayer. Yeah, do not pray that I have an easy life. You if I was there in the room with you, would you hit me with something? Is that is that is that is this the energy uh, yeah, I'm getting I, right I, now? I, I, I pick up, I'd start with this little book on tyranny by timothy snyder and i smash you with this book uh, i'd hit you I'll with this it. harder than will smith hit chris rock this week <laughs> <laughs> and i would say now uh, damn it all to hell you read this book just as fast uh, as you can and, and don't i would say thank you i would say thank you ma'am may i have another i'm praying for you i'm praying for you because <laughs> we need you to be here with us we don't want to be here without you but in the case that we're here without you, we would like to carry on this work and we would love to do it in a way that makes you proud. How do we do that? How do we honor your work and how do we make you proud of us? Wait, wait, wait. You do, you do that every day that you do not react negatively to the ugly things that are said about you because you're too white. You do that every day in the way you can and the way you live your life and the way you respond to the ugliness around you. You do that every day that you associate happily and freely and honestly with people who are different from yourself. And you have to do that because everybody is different from you. 
You know that, and so do I. You are, you are a perfect example of the kind of person who can say to others, I've been where that man's going, and I hope that you would never talk about me the way you just talked about him. Because you know what people of color go through, because you've gone through it in a, in a, a, a different way and for a different reason than they have gone through it every day. They, you've, you've gone through the same things. You know more, a thousand times more than I do. And so does every melanaceous and melanotic woman know a thousand times more than I do. If I had the power today, I would go to the Senate and I would stand in front of those 100 so-called people and I would say, how dare you support the statements and the questions that were asked that woman who wants to be on the Supreme Court? How dare you? encourage and not stop the questions that were asked in that hearing room last week how can you call yourselves senators somebody needs to come in here and run you boys through the blue-eyed brown-eyed exercise and i mean do it in a tough way and not smiling and not happy and let you find out exactly how it feels to be the way she felt and see if you have what she had that made her able to sit there and listen to it and answer your questions and ask and answer them in ways that you had never imagined them being answered because the questions you asked were so totally out of place. They were so inappropriate and they were so nonsensical and she was willing to sit there and take it. Now, if she didn't prove by that, that she will be a good person on the Supreme Court, then you have to compare her to the last two people that Donald Trump proposed, nominated, and who got nominated and who got chosen to be on the Supreme Court. One of yes, them has no place, being is no has no right to be on the Supreme Court, does not belong there. And the other one is just barely. Now, this is ridiculous. That's what we learned with watching that. <laughs> if I if if there were ever a time when I wanted to be able to go in and say, folks, what you just witnessed is absolutely an attempt at assassination of character by four people who have no character. And none of those, none of those senators stood up and said that because they don't dare. They want to get reelected. Ms. Jane, one of the things, you know, we, we started talking about the, the reality of, of uh, Germany during the time that the SS and the Third Reich were in power. One of the things that Germany does that America does not do is acknowledge that part of their history. They do it really beautifully because it's just one chapter of their history. They were Germany before that. We were not called America before white supremacy. But one of the things that Germany does is they acknowledge the very few brave souls that were that were would were considered Aryan Jews or I'm sorry Aryan Germans that stood up and that fought and that gave their lives and that sacrificed and uh, their their livelihood and things like that the few that actually did speak and those people I think is very important to remember them and at some point when we tell the full story of this country I believe that your name will be one of those names how would you like us to remember you <laughs> Here's a, a woman who was born and raised with a Catholic mother and a Baptist father, a father who believed in telling the truth, who was the most moral person I've ever known in my life. 
and who said, you know the difference between right and wrong? Now do the right thing, goddammit. And so that's what you do. And that's what I did. And that's what I'll continue to do. And what, what I do is, for God's sake, you can remember me as that, that mouthy white woman who didn't know how, when to shut up. That's okay. <laughs> I know what I am. I know exactly what I am. But I also know that I really hope, and, and hope is holding on to positive energy. I really hope that the kids who went through my class or the adults who went through the blue-eyed, brown-eyed exercise over these last 54 years will make a difference in the people around them. Because one person can make a difference. Martin Luther King Jr. proved to us that one person can make a difference. He did. And he died doing it. Now, it was easy for us to kill a black man who has a big mouth, but who knew what he was talking about. It'll be a whole lot harder to kill an old white woman who has a big mouth and who learned a lot from Martin Luther King Jr. Anything I know, anything I do, I do because of what I've learned from people of color. So don't ever, ever, ever say, oh, your name should go down in history. No, 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 no. The people from whom I learned these things, those names should go down in history. Absolutely, because they taught all of us and they died doing it. I'm not going to die doing this. I'm so healthy, I probably won't die until I'm about 132. Now that's a threat. I want you to know that. Nevertheless, nevertheless. It's just, you look, you, you know, look the same ever since I've, I've known who you were. You looked exactly the same the whole time. Well, don't, don't, don't look too closely. That's okay. We'll just, we'll just, we'll just, we'll just pretend, that, we'll pretend that you're right about that. Absolutely. And keep the cameras at a distance. I'll be all right. No, no, I don't want, I don't want to be, I want the idea of the blue-eyed, brown-eyed exercise, which I got from Adolf Hitler. Because one of the ways they decided who went into the gas chamber was eye color. So, and I was born when he started doing that. I want the eye color exercise and what it means and what it does to people who are, have the wrong color eyes for an hour and a half. I want that exercise to be part of education in this country, but I want it to be done by people who wouldn't do it to be mean, who wouldn't do it to get even with some kid. And that's the reason you can't have every teacher do it because some teachers would use that to abuse another child yet again. So you can't have that happen. But you could put every teacher through the blue-eyed, brown-eyed exercise and you can say, and you are not going to teach in this system until you've gone through that exercise and until you've learned something from it, until you have written a paragraph after it's done that proves to us that you've learned something. I think teachers don't know what they're talking. White teachers don't know what they're talking about. And teachers of color aren't allowed to talk about what they know. There is something really ugly. White teachers don't know what they're talking about, but have the yes, freedom to talk. Yes. Teachers of color. Teachers of color know what they're talking about, but don't have the freedom to talk. Amazing. Absolutely. Terrifying. Terrifying. Absolutely. Frustrating. Just ignorance. Self-imposed ignorance is what we're living with. An emotional commitment to ignorance, I've heard you say. Absolutely, and that's what it is. That isn't what I say. That's what the man who wrote that book says. Nathan Rothstein. Everybody should read that book. It's a book about teaching. It's about teachers and about children. And he says, prejudice is an emotional commitment to ignorance. But some prejudice is good. I have prejudice where snakes and skunks are concerned. However, <laughs> racial prejudice is an emotional commitment to ignorance. The word racial should be in front of that. 
because that's the problem in this country. That's the largest problem we have in the United States of America is the ignorance about skin color. Skin color isn't the problem. Ignorance about skin color is the problem. And education should have solved that problem 100 years ago because we knew better. But if we know better, why don't you do better? Because it's easier to go along to get along. And all I had to do if I wanted to teach in that system forever was just agree with everything those teachers were saying about those kids who couldn't learn. I maintain that there's no kid who can't learn, but there are lots of teachers who can't teach. Amazing. You know, my, my, my mother was an educator. My grandmother was an educator. Uh, I, before I was, you know, paid to, to make the music that I made, I taught kindergarten. Um, you know, I come from a long line of educators and, you know, so there, there's part of when, when you're speaking, especially when you talk about that process that just sees my mom, you know, yeah. and I know I really, when you say, when you say the words, you know, don't worry about me. I don't care what people think about me. I don't need to be remembered. You can, I know that that's sincere. I know you believe that, but please also ma'am hear us say that we need and, and appreciate very, very deeply your example that, that we, you give us strength, you give us hope, you give us something to aspire to and, and maybe even hopefully beyond. But you doing what you're doing and the witness that you're that you've borne and the contributions that you've made and the clarity and, and fearlessness that you've had. It really means something very, very, very profound to us. And I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. I swear by God, I love you. And I have ever since I first saw, when I saw you on, on the eye of the storm and, and some of the other things that I saw when I was a little kid, I thought that's the only person that looks like me that, that feels the way I feel. Prior to you, I had not heard one person that, that says things the way that I, that I feel them. And I didn't even have the language to say yet. And you, you probably didn't have that. So I don't know if you know, ma'am, what it means for someone like me to have that type of of, uh, of role model and have that type of uh, example to follow. But I'm grateful to God for you. And well, I love you. I, I'm grateful to God for you. And I, I appreciate what you're saying. But let me warn you about something. Yes, ma'am. If you come near me wearing Old Spice cologne, I'm likely to jump your bones. <laughs> And now I've turned you into a man of color. You aren't white anymore. <laughs> <laughs> <But> thank you. <laughs> oh, my Lord. Okay. <laughs> Take a picture of him now. This man oh. is no longer albinic. So no longer <laughs> suffering from albinism. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. Do, do Incredible. I have do I have power or do I have power? You you have uh, yes. <laughs> Incredible. Thank Incredible. You for, thank you for the lovely things you've said. I really appreciate it. I take it seriously. Can we do, do this again sometime? Anytime you are aren't afraid to. Sure, absolutely. But why aren't you sending why don't you send me one of your videos, one of your tapes, one of your CDs, is that what I'm talking about? Send me some of your music, just just one, because I don't have a whole lot, but I'd like to hear some music that, that wasn't from the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, because every time I hear those, one of those, I go and do you know, a soup sandwich because my husband and I listen to those. So send uh, me some uh, of your music, yeah. Do you like vinyl records or CDs? Which do you prefer? I have uh, 
I, I know. I don't want the records. I want the others. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. And, you know, I don't have the language either. This is another thing I'm not into. But I, I'm into music. I love music. And I love music so much that I can't stand it anymore now that my husband's gone. But I would, and today somebody was here to sell, to sell something. And he said, you like that music? You into rap? I said, I'm into anything that doesn't sound like anything my husband and I used to listen to. Uh, okay. So well, this, this will likely sound very different. Okay. I'm, and I'll, I'll take it and be happy because I've been to a Killer Mike concert. Oh, okay. And he's coming to my house in two weeks. We are good friends, Killer Mike and I. Amazing. And T.I. And T. Tim Harris and I are, are good friends. So, you know, well, I, I don't know T.I., some... but I know Killer Mike. So please tell him that Brother Ali says hello. I will. I'll tell him that you said and, hello. And Dr. Cornell West sent, sent you his love as well. I texted him and told you that I thought we'd be talking. And he said, <laughs> my dear sister, give my dear sister my love. <laughs> Tell him thank you so much. We had a good conversation, I thought. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I heard it. I heard see, it. See how fortunate I am. Do you realize how fortunate I am to have had this kind of experience? And it's not something I asked for, and it's not something I demand, and it's not something I think I've earned, but I'm going to enjoy every single moment of it. Being exposed to people like Cornell West is a tremendous, tremendous honor. Absolutely. Absolutely. I look forward to speaking with you again. Uh, I, may, I, may, I may catch, I may see if I can get an Uber. Part of being albino is I'm legally blind. I can't drive. I might <laughs> see if I can get an Uber to Sun City. I might come to Sun City just to hug you and cut your grass. <laughs> I don't have enough grass to bother with, but you can- Well, then I water your plants. <laughs> <laughs> and you, hey, we're rationing water in California, so we can't do that either. You'll have to think of something else. All right. Much love to you. Okay, Bye. much love to you, and thank you for this opportunity. So thank you so much for listening. You'll you'll hear there at the end that, uh, you know, me and Miss Jane had a really great conversation. This is so often the case that people that I feel bonded with, like there are people that I listen to and I like, I like their music, I like their whatever. I like how they talk. I like their stuff. I like their content, for lack of a better term. I like what they produce and what they share, their offerings. But then there are certain people that I feel personally connected to that I watch them, you know, or I listen to them, or I, I observe them, or I, I, you know, take in what they're offering. And there are some people that I'm like, no, I love that person. I feel a bond with that person. And almost every single one of them, I feel like the creator some way, someday opens up a, a door between me and them, and I get to connect with them, and it's confirmed. So in my mind, that's what just happened there. And she got so comfortable with me that she really was just... You know, she offers. She she threatens to smack me at one point. <laughs> she she uh, <laughs> all kind of stuff that I won't repeat. But man, really, really wonderful. Thank you so much to the to the great uh, Miss Jane Elliott. Uh, we appreciate her so very much. Uh, special thanks to all of our supporters. To you for listening. Please like, share, subscribe, rate, comment, all that stuff. But please, please, please share the podcast if you're digging it. We want to give a special thanks to the Cop Foundation, to UPF. Special thanks to um, our brother Resma Minikim. Special thanks to Vice Jaren Official. Shout out Amna Mirza and Mansur Panawala and Darian Washington and Mark from Medina and Ant for letting us use the the music for the podcast. And uh, this episode is brought to you and produced, as always, by Brendan BK1 Kelly. It's a production of Travelers Media. Thank you. I love you.
Hopefully next week we'll look and sound better than we did this week. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.